Welcome home and welcome to the Mount Carmel podcast. Today, we'll be hearing from Pastor Dave Wallen teaching on the topic of Abraham. The intro and outro music today is provided by one of our guest physicians, Christian Hoff. Well, thanks for letting me take that time to just kind of um, pass the mic around again. Uh, some of you met last night, but others, um, uh, it's been fun to hear from you. And, and uh, um, a lo- I mean, I'm not going to get to all those Abraham stories, um, I'm, I'm, unless I rewrite everything tonight, um, which I'm tempted because you guys brought up a lot of good ones, but we will hit a lot of those as well. Um, what I love about Mont Carmel is it's a place to connect and reconnect, um, connect with new people, create new relationships, but also reconnect. I mean, we've got a bunch of LBI friends here. We've got uh, the Hoffs. Um, we, uh, we, we look forward to reconnecting with them every year here. Our daughter's on staff, reconnect with her and, and other um, uh, counselors from our congregation. So it's just a, it's a great place to um, to get away and, and just nurture relationships. Um, foremost, of course, the relationship with the Lord. Um, favorite ice cream flavor, anything with chocolate, caramel, fudge, right, Andrea? I, uh, I'm kind of a sucker for that. And I'll get into all my Abraham's stories and questions as we go here. A little bit more about me. Um, um, there's my family. You've, you've kind of met all of them, probably except for Josiah. Um, Josiah is, um, was on staff here uh, four summers ago, something like that, um, and uh, we're hoping he makes an appearance at some point this, this week. He's our oldest. He lives in, in Minneapolis, works in Minneapolis, so we'll see if he gets some time off. Emma's on staff. Luke um, just graduated. This is his, at his graduation party. If you can't tell, he's going to Wheaton College with Emma, and then Lydia is the one that um, kind of runs our house. Um, she's feisty. Um, we love her. Um, I serve at Faith Lutheran Church in Hutchinson, Minnesota. Um, it's 151 years old. We, um, we're going to celebrate our anniversary last year. It got postponed, so we're celebrating 151 this fall. Um, it's a, it's, I love this church. It was, um, it was, uh, formed by six Danish families 151 years ago. They just started meeting and, um, and they built this sanctuary, 
um, started building it in the Great Depression, and um, uh, it's it's just a, it's a fun place to serve. We we feel so blessed to be there. Um, Hutchinson is um, hour straight west of the Twin Cities, hour straight south from St. Cloud, uh, fifteen thousand or so people. Um, I grew up. Um, in Plymouth Wyzetta area, so we'd always drive through Hutchinson on the way to Watertown, South Dakota, where my grandma lived, and we'd always stop at the Taco John's there. And so when, when I saw in the Metro Lutheran, that old newspaper, the, the, the youth ministry position that they had there, I was like, Hutchinson, that place is awesome. They have Taco John's. <laughs> I think we've been to Taco John's like five times since we moved there now in, in 2001, but... Uh, um, but we love the city. It's, uh, it was uh, actually, um, the city was um, founded by three brothers, the Hutchinson brothers from Lynn, Massachusetts. And they came out, they were, they were musicians, they were artists. And they came out and they wanted to, to, find, to, to found a town where the, prairie meet, where the forest meets the prairie. And, uh, and so they, they came around this river bend of the Crow River and they saw this spot and they're like, we got to build a city right here. And so they built the city. They named all the streets after composers. And then somewhere, someone was like, that's too original. So they renamed them First Avenue and Second Avenue. And third. it was really disappointing. But, uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's a fun town. We, we really like it. It's kind of a perfect size for us. And, and we've made it our home since 2001. Um, all right, we've got to get going here. Um, I want to do an intro here before snack. So we're talking about Abraham. In the grand scope of the biblical narrative, Abraham doesn't initially just stand out among other um, more significant people. I mean, obviously, God holds the top spot, uh, especially as revealed in Jesus Christ, but then there's the apostles, Peter and John, and of course, Paul. Even in the Old Testament, it seems like Abraham is dwarfed by Moses and David and Isaiah and even his grandson, Jacob, and great-grandson, Joseph. But a closer look at Abraham reveals his importance. There's an Abraham thread that runs throughout all of Scripture. And Abraham becomes a key part about how God is known, right? Um, He declares, I am uh, the God uh, of your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's how he introduced himself to um, Old Testament people. In the prophet Isaiah, he declares, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. Uh, For he is but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. When When we turn to the New Testament, Matthew starts his gospel off with uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He makes that connection in verse 1 of his gospel. <clears throat> I believe, and you, uh, you know, I, I didn't think too hard about this, uh, but I think Abraham might be the only Old Testament patriarch featured in one of Jesus' parables. Um, uh, uh, you know, Lazarus and uh, the rich man. Jesus and the Jews debate over Abraham constantly, especially in in the Gospel of John. 
Paul and James each use Abraham to make their case on the connection of faith and works, right? Uh, The author of Hebrews features Abraham prominently in his faith hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11. We see Abraham referred to as our father Abraham, as the man of faith, and as God's friend. But it's not just Jesus and the biblical writers that lay claim and make use of Abraham. Um, I, I picked up this book, and I think the title of the book just kind of uh, illustrates this. It's called Abraham, One God, Three Wives, Five Religions. It's by uh, Francis Worthington, who himself is a, a Baha'i of the Baha'i faith. Um, Here's what this looks like according to Worthington. This is his little uh, connections to the various faiths there. In the same way that the, the land that pro- was promised to Abraham was, is contested to this day, Abraham himself is a contested figure. Uh, many faiths lay claim to Abraham. So you can see there, of course, Uh, For the Jews, Abraham is the beginning, right? He is the first Hebrew. Um, They they trace their chosenness to Abraham. Islam emphasizes his relationship to his first son, Ishmael. Um, The son, of course, of Abe and Sarah's servant, Hagar, his handmaiden. The Baha'i faith traces its roots to a union of Sarah's offspring and uh, Abraham's last wife's offspring, uh, Keturah. There, uh, they're, like apparently, they, their descendants eventually married, and um, the Baha'i faith founder or whatever. Um, and the Bab, I have no idea what that is. I've never even heard of that one, but it traces its roots to Abraham and Hagar. But what about us? Who is Abraham and what does he represent for Christians? Because we are Jesus people, after all. We don't identify ourselves as children of Abraham, but as children of God. We don't call Abraham father, we call God father. So why spend a week diving into this old patriarch? Well, I was born in a, my family growing up. We didn't go to church too much. We're kind of C and E Christians. We kind of call you know uh, Christmas and Easter. They'd put me in confirmation because that's what you do, and you kind of just get you know endure it, right? And then you graduate from church and whatnot. Um, faith wasn't a big thing in my family. My mom's from Taiwan, so she's basically Buddhist, and and my dad wasn't very involved. They separated, remarried, and and it just we weren't that involved in in church. And so faith wasn't a, a conversation around uh, in our household. But I remember, um, uh, you know, as I became a young adult, and I started having conversations with my grandma, my dad's mom, and was just so blessed to learn about her faith. Um, was wisconsin synod, then missouri synod, deeply faithful person. And when she died, I inherited her Bible. And uh, it's so cool to just look through this and see the notes, the Bible studies that she's just crammed into here, and to just kind of have a little bit of my 
my grandma's faith legacy. And as I was thinking about it, what I, what I really appreciate about it is it gave me kind of some roots, uh, some family faith roots, you know. Um, I was so blessed to marry into Andrea's family, and they're just, their, their family is just so, I mean, they were my faith parents in a sense. But to have on my, on my, my side of the family a little bit of that, that, those roots was um, a big difference maker for me and, and a real blessing. Well, this week, we're going to be kind of deepening our roots uh, with Abraham and learning how he has helped shape our faith and um, uh, learning from his faith as we go. We're going to be exploring the dynamics of faith or, or promise and faith. What does it mean to receive a promise? What does it look like to follow a promise? Promises are a huge feature, of course, in Abraham's story, and of course, throughout the entire Bible. Um, author uh, Terence uh, Frethheim, I don't really know how to pronounce his name, he notes that divine promises are the most remarkable dimensions of the Abraham narrative. He says they occur in almost every chapter. In every chapter of the Abraham narrative, you see promises there. And with those promises, there are faithful and sometimes not so faithful responses, human responses. And so this week we're going to explore God's promise and Abraham's faith. And you notice we capitalized promise there. It'll serve as an acronym to kind of guide our study because that's what um, teachers do. Um, and uh, unfortunately, promise is only seven um, letters long, so that's, I could only get to seven stories. It's promise's fault. But um, this is how I have broken it up. We are going to talk um, after the break here about proceeding in faith. Tomorrow we'll look at um, regardless of faith and otherworldly faith. Um, we will uh, talk about how he was, um, um, he, there, there was an episode where it was mistaken for faith. And then we'll uh, look at interceding for faith. I should really, let me break, break this down a little bit. Proceeding in faith, of course, uh, we'll talk about the call of Abraham. Um, regardless of faith, we're going to look at the episode of Abraham and Sarah in Egypt. Uh, Otherworldly faith is at Genesis 15, the stars, the uh, faithful response of Abraham. Mistaken for faith is the episode where um, uh, Hagar enters the picture. Uh, interceding for faith, uh, Abraham negotiating with God for Sodom and Gomorrah from uh, chapter 18. Then we're going to jump out of uh, chronological order a little bit. Um, and we'll look at senseless faith and the sacrifice of Isaac. Then we'll go back and look at the end of faith, the birth of Isaac and the fulfillment, finally, of that promise. And so uh, there is a lot of story, unfortunately, that we won't be able to get through. Um, you'll, I mean, we can certainly have those conversations um, on our own. Um, and you can read it on your own. There's a lot of questions that I'm not going to be able to answer. I, I'm not an expert on Abraham. I just prepared material. 
Um, but it sounds like we've got a lot of people here that know a lot about Abraham. And so uh, we can dialogue about those things and have a, a good time and just have some fun exploring together. So um, unfortunately, I don't think they have ice cream for uh, snack. I really wish they did after that, that introduction, right? But uh, there, I believe there is um, some, some snacks out there. Let's take 15 minutes, and then we'll come back and jump into proceeding in faith. Let's jump into proceeding in faith, and we'll proceed without them. <laughs> and we're going to proceed with a, a movie clip, because those are fun, if the technology works here. So, um, any uh, Indiana Jones fans here? Indiana Jones? All right, all right. So you'll know this clip. Uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, great movie. Sean Connery. This is towards the end of the movie. If you haven't watched it, this is a spoiler. But um, he, uh, they're they're looking for the Holy Grail, all right? So obviously based on a true story. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know his dad has been shot. And the only way to save him, he's got to get the Holy Grail, because, of course, we know that the Holy Grail has healing properties. And, um, and he has to do these tests to get to the Grail. Um, one is, involves ducking, one's the name of God. This is the last test as he comes uh, upon this large just chasm, bottomless pit, right? And there's no way across. And he has to... Um, uh, he, he's got his dad's notes, and he's looking through his notes, and there's this picture of this guy, like, walking in midair, and he's like, oh, my goodness, this is a leap of faith. And so, you know, he clutches his heart, as you can see, and he puts his, his foot out, and he steps, and miraculously, he lands on solid ground, and he shifts the angle a little bit, and you can see there's actually, like, a almost like a camouflage, invisible bridge across, so he crosses over, saves the day, and then they had to make a sequel that was terrible. But um, uh, uh, I, I never, I, I, when I saw, I, I saw um, Hans, I think his name, Hans Wiersma, is that a theologian? He, I, I was at a, like, yeah, Hans. Uh, I did a little seminar with him, and he used this clip, uh, to talk about faith, and I didn't really like it. I was like, I just don't, you know, I don't know if that's the best illustration for faith. I mean, it's not like this blind leap of faith all the time. But then as I was re-watching it um, for, uh, and thinking about um, uh, this, I was like, well, you know, sometimes that's life. Sometimes it feels like we're stepping into the unknown, right? Or sometimes it feels like the unknown is stepping into us, right? Hashtag 2020, right? It's like, whoa. I guess we're doing something different right now, right? Um, and, uh, but there's times where it feels like you're standing on the brink and you just have to like summon up the courage to take that first step. The famous prophet Bilbo Baggins once observed, <laughs> it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road and if you don't keep your feet, there's no, tell there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. 
As a result, um, some of us don't step out the door altogether, though, right? That's dangerous. We become stuck, don't we? We become paralyzed with fear or anxiety. We're reluctant. Um, and it's because we're comfortable. Life is comfortable. We're safe, or at least we're in a familiar situation, right? And even if the familiar isn't safe, at least the familiarity gives us a little sense of control. And that's what we like. We don't want to move because moving is scary. Now imagine you're Abraham and Sarah, and you're 75 and 65 years old, and God calls you to start your life's major work. Um, Perhaps some of you can imagine that. Maybe your life's major work started when you were uh, older. Um, Maybe you're in that position. Um, But uh, what if your life's major work involves moving to a foreign land and starting a family at age 75 years old? Maybe not as relatable, I hope, for your sake. And yet, that's what we find in Genesis 12. But who is this old man? Who is Abraham? What is Abraham's backstory? I think, Ginger, you asked that question. What's going on with this guy? Uh, The Baha'i and the Jewish legend has it that a star rose in the heavens when Abraham was born, signaling the birth of one that would forever change the way that religion was practiced. This child legend has it Uh, Abraham started questioning the practice of idol worship at a young age. Um, As he matured, he not only broke away from the practice of idol worship, but then actually started, as legend has it, preaching against it, declaring monotheism over polytheism, one God as opposed to many. In fact, as a result... Uh, Another legend says that he was cast into a fire. And the legend has it that as he began, he felt the intense heat for just a moment. But then the angel Gabriel dashed up to heaven, interceded with God over the, the torture of this innocent man. And so the burning logs turned into fresh blooms. And uh, the fiery pit was uh, transformed into a garden. Um, But you're not going to find that in the Bible. You're not going to find any of that in the Bible. The closest thing we might uh, find is found in Joshua chapter 24, uh, where he says to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. And they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Beyond that, the only background information we have about Abraham in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 11. If you want, you can turn there. We find a a, a primitive world. Uh, This is post-flood post-Tower of Babel. The author of Genesis then lays out a genealogy. 
And um, this genealogy, you know, genealogies are Lecter's worst nightmare because you have to pronounce names like Arpakshad, right? Um, which is, you know, great name. Who gave birth to Shelah, who begat Eber, who had Peleg, who had Ryu, who had Serug, who had Nahor, who had Terah. And then verse 26 says, Then when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram and Nahor and Haran. So the first thing we learn about Abraham is that Abraham was not his name. In fact, for the first 99 years of his life, Abraham was known as Abram, which is a name that ironically means exalted father. The narrative continues. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka. Now Sarah was barren, she had no child. So the second thing that we learn about Abram is that his wife was barren. I love Walter Brueggemann's commentary on Genesis in the interpretation series. He says There's no, there is no suggestion of punishment or curse when it comes to this barrenness. It's simply reported that this family has played out its future and has nowhere else to go. He says, barrenness is the way of human history. It is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. There is no foreseeable future. There is no human power to invent a future. I have four kids. Um, for a while, it seemed like if I just looked at my wife, she would become pregnant. Having kids was never a problem for us. And yet, I am barren. On my own, in my sin, I am hopeless, futureless, and barren. How do you see the barrenness in your life? How has your sin and brokenness robbed you of hope? and a future. I got a call on Wednesday from a young gal that um, I had done premarital counseling for, um, for uh, her and her husband. Um, I think they were married about a year ago. And she said, I have a problem. She said, um, last night, Mike told me that for the last three months, he's been lying to me and that he is racked up $10,000 in gambling debt. And she says, I feel absolutely betrayed. She says, I don't know if I can ever trust him again. She looked into the future of their relationship and she saw barrenness. She saw no hope. She saw no future where there would be trust. 
Uh, she saw a, a broken relationship that she didn't think could ever be healed. In that intense moment, it's so easy to, you know, in, in those moments of our lives to, to see that and to just despair. Like, this is never, ever going to be better. There's no possible way. You know, you just don't see the hope. It's, it's hopeless. I think we've all been there in our lives, and it's, it's just one of the worst places to be. It's where we really rely on those ice creams to get us through, and obviously more. Chapter 11 closes. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. We don't know why they left Ur. Um, we just know that they did. Um, they were on their way to Canaan. They stopped in Terah and kind of settled there, in Hera, Haran, and settled there, um, and Terah dies. Um, we're just not given much backstory here. But what takes place there in between um, chapter 11, verse 32, and chapter 12, verse 1, is perhaps the most important structural break in the Old Testament, or at least in Genesis. It's a sudden transition that we're going to see here from the history of man to the history of Israel, from the history of the curse to the history of blessing. God takes a barren couple and does something completely new and seemingly impossible. What was our uh, theme verse for the day? Uh, what was the song? Yeah, Doing a new thing, making a way through the wilderness. I was thinking Abraham. Abraham right there, right? Um, Brueggemann says, The marvel of biblical faith is that barrenness is the arena of God's life-giving action. So let's read chapter 12. I'm reading from the ESV. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make, you, uh, make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he had departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Sh at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and I on the east, 
And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. Now the Lord said to Abram, go. Leave your country, leave your extended family, leave your, your dad's house, and go to the land that I will show you. And then in a few verses after this radical command, we read simply, so Abram went, just as the Lord had told him. One of the things that drives me crazy sometimes about the Bible is just like the lack of character development here. I mean, come on. He had to have made a pros and cons list of, you know, why he should or shouldn't go, compared them, right? He had to like go on realtor.com and see how the house's prices are in Canaan and, and like, you know, stress out about this and but no, I mean, there's just, there's no reaction given from Abram here. No excitement, no reluctance, anxiety, fear, joy, something, just anything. But no, it's just obedience. The only reaction we get is the reaction of faith. Drives me crazy. And who knows, maybe he did go through the, that whole gamut of emotions and reactions. But for the author of Genesis, what was more important was his ultimate response, his obedience, his, his you know, step of faith that he would be proceeding in faith. When have you had to proceed in faith? When have you had to answer a call? I was going to be a movie star. That was my plan when I was in high school. I mean, I, I, I thought that, you know, that would be no problem. Um, and there was like, you know, plan B was maybe I could go into youth ministry. And so I had plans to make it all happen, and they all fell apart. And the last minute, I decided to go to this little school, Bible school out in Seattle, Lutheran Bible Institute. And um, I'd give youth ministry a shot. If I didn't like it and decided that Hollywood was calling me, then I could, you know, go there and I, at least I would know the Bible. Met my wife, like my first week there, we did cartwheels together and the rest is history. Um, she fell in love with me instantaneously. I've got the microphone, you don't. So, uh, um, but, uh, you know, I, I was miserable at youth ministry for the first several years of college. Like I did like these ministries on campus and I just, it was like, I was like, I'm terrible. I don't know what I'm doing, um, you know. And, uh, and so I was like questioning this call. Like, am I supposed to be a youth director? I don't know. Um, and then finally my senior year had a really good uh, internship and learned from just a great youth, youth minister. And, and uh, Andre and I served at a, a church in St. Paul for a couple of years, and it just was like just so affirming of that call. But I struggled with it. And then when I was in youth ministry, you know, everyone, when you're a youth director, they always ask you, like, when are you going to become a real pastor? And I was determined. I was like, no, I'm going to be a youth director till I die. I'm going to die at, like, age 82 in a four-square accident, diving for the ball, make an amazing play, die, and just go out on top, right? Um, and, but they kept asking, and, and eventually I kind of made, like, this 
almost Gideon-like deal with God. I said, Lord, if you, if you want me to be a pastor, two things have to happen. Uh, my pastors have to tell me I should be a pastor, and there's got to be a way for me to do it where I won't have to uproot my family and my, you know, leave my job that's supporting my family and, and move to a seminary. Made this deal with God. And like a couple of weeks later, my pastors call me into their office. They say, you should be a pastor. Here's a, here's a new, brand new way to do it. It's called the Institute of Lutheran Theology. You're doing it. And I was like, okay, that, uh, that, that confirms that. But then, you know, when you're a pastor and you've got your MDiv, people are like, well, you should go get a doctorate. That'd be cool. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I would never do that. Why would I do that? And, uh, you know, some of my, my friends are like, hey, uh, you know, here's this doctorate program. I'm like, no way. Nope, not interested. And then Nathan Hoff ruins my life. <laughs> Nate's like, hey, doctorate of ministry around the writings of Eugene Peterson. I'm like, I'm in. You know, I mean, Nathan could ask me to do anything and I'd do it because I respect him so much. But, uh, but, you know, Nathan and I just embarked on this crazy journey uh, with Western Seminary in Holland, Michigan, um, looking at uh, this brand new program. I like to be guinea pig. Um, Holy Presence, uh, Eugene Peterson and the Pastoral Imagination. And it's been a blast so far. Just little ways, little callings that have come into my life and, uh, you know, some that I really resisted, some that I, was, I just could not see as a, a possibility, um, but God is persistent, and he continues to just impress that into my life, and um, I just try not to screw it up too much, you know. You probably have similar stories, similar experiences where, where God has nudged you, or God has pushed you, or um, where, you know, next thing you know, you're like, oh, I I think actually this is God-ordained, that I'm doing something that he really wants me to do. Um, it's a crazy thing, walking out your door, right? But this isn't about me, and really this isn't about Abraham here. He's not the major character of this story, the focus of this story. He's a big player, but he's not the major player. That's God, of course, the promise giver, the one who commanded Abraham Abram, to go, also gave a reason for Abram to go. The command came with a promise. And it's not just any old promise. It's a three-fold promise featuring five I am statements of the Lord's intent. The Lord declared, I will make you a great nation. The Lord declared, I will bless you. The Lord declared, I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That tied into our, uh, our watchwords this morning, right? Um, Hallowed be your name. The Lord declared, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you which is an interesting thing that we'll look at tomorrow. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What an amazing uh, declarations of the Lord's intentions here with Abraham. That was uh, all uh, 
incorporated in a, in a threefold promise that breaks down like this. I will make you a great nation. I will give you a great name. And I will bless the families of the earth through you. It's a national promise. It's a personal promise. And it's an international promise. Such a wide-reaching promise. It's a promise that would shape the destiny of Israel. It's a promise that finds its ultimate fulfillment, of course, in Jesus. And Paul um, makes that connection beautifully. And thus, it's a promise, because of that, it's a promise that you and I benefit from uh, in Christ. I love this. Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, calls this promise to Abraham. He says this is the gospel beforehand. Galatians 3, 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. God's preaching this gospel, this promise to Abraham. Um, and, 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 and we're the beneficiaries of that. So that everything before chapter 12 is the history of the curse. Everything uh, after it is the history of the blessing. It's the fallout of Genesis 3 beforehand and, and the fruit that leads, of course, to Christ afterwards. For Abraham, this was a promise that causes him to leave everything. No matter how good it was or bad it was, the promise was that good. It caused him to leave everything. For God, the promise was his plan to save everything. And for Abraham, it was enough. It was enough to set out, to go, as Hebrews 11 says, not knowing where he was going. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going, to begin his journey, to proceed by faith. And with a promise like that, how could you not go, Right? I mean, sure, life was probably safe and uh, secure back in Haran. He was in a comfortable, predictable, controllable situation. But as we saw, it was a barren situation. A situation without a future, without a hope. And yet, it was this elderly barren, childless couple that God chooses to start the great family of faith. Walter Brueggemann notes, God does not depend on any potentiality in the one addressed. Abraham and Sarah were quite without potential. When we think of all the excuses we make for why we're not going to share the gospel or go like, oh, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know enough. I don't know. He used Abraham and Sarah um, to do something that they couldn't possibly do. Um, and it worked, worked brilliantly. So God gives a couple of hopeless nobodies the gospel 
beforehand. A glorious promise attached to a radical command. Of course they would go. To stay, to, to stay is safe and yet barren. To go is risky and yet full of hope. So they proceed in faith. And then there's us. Now, I don't know how God spoke to Abraham here. It doesn't really tell us. There's, there's no burning bushes or dreams with visions or spectacular means that are described here. And, and yet I know that I haven't received such clear, audible, divine instructions like that. But I do know that I have received some clear, marvelous promises from God. And that because of those promises, I can take that leap of faith. I can step out in faith. I can proceed in the life of faith. Because God has given me a promise. And he's given you a promise through his word. And granted, it's not spoken in whatever dramatic ways that God spoke to Abraham, but rather spoken in ordinary ways. Spoken through fellow redeemed sinners, parents, pastors, brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's attached them to plain, ordinary things like water, like bread, like wine. He spoke to me in my baptism. I can taste his promise in Holy Communion. So I can go. I can go like Abraham. I can journey through that life of faith. So why don't I? Why am I hesitant to set forth and follow Jesus? Why do I cling to my old life and it's safe, controllable, and predictable? But why am I blind to the barrenness of my own life. I see God's command to go as an unreasonable demand and not as the gracious invitation and freedom that it is. Instead of proceeding in faith, I proceed in caution. I don't want to step out in faith. Instead, I often step back to assess the situation. I don't just regulate Stepping out in faith to, to big moves or major life decisions. Do I, do I make this move? Do I make this job? But it's a daily thing. Faith is needed daily. So stepping out in faith is a daily adventure. It's ongoing. Do I trust the promise today? Will I lean on the Lord Today, do I seek to serve today? This, of course, means that my failure to do so is an ongoing failure because I doubt daily, right? I'm selfish daily. It's a daily failure. I won't proceed. I won't leap. I don't take that step. But God does. God takes steps. God is the mover. Before Abraham moved, God moved first. And we're going to see 
how Abraham is not perfect, despite what Paul says. There, I addressed it. Um, He'll go off on his own. He'll make mistakes. He's just like you and me. But God is perfect in his promise. And God will remind Abraham of his promise over and over, renewing it and reassuring his anxious chosen one. I like how Brueggemann puts it here. He says, The threat and the, poss- and the possibility articulated in the narrative of Abraham and Sarah put a crisis before humanity. It is the crisis of deciding to live either for the promise and so disengaging from the present barren ways of things or to live against the promise, holding on grimly to the present ordering of life. Do we live for it or do we live against it? He showed how this is played out in in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, And Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. You see the people living against the promise, seeking to destroy him because of them. And you see those living for the promise, hanging on his words. Um, I was thinking about this yesterday when Nathan was taking us through Hebrews 10 there. Um, uh, For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Um, Are you going to live for the promise? Or are you going to live against it? Are you going to endure for the promise? Martin Luther was uh, counseling his best friend, Melanchthon. And and Melanchthon was was just trying to figure out how to proceed in faith. And uh, Luther eventually um, uh, just says to him, you know what? Sin boldly. But all the more boldly, believe and and be bolder still. Believe believe in Christ even more, you know. Uh, Sometimes we get so caught up, like, oh, I don't know. Is this going to hold if I step out in faith here, if I follow the Lord? And I don't know, is this, I haven't examined all the scriptures, and then, you know, then i got to get in the original languages and stuff. I mean, what what should I do? Um, and, And finally, Luther's like, just do it. You know, if it's sin, sin boldly. But do it in faith and and then cling to Christ in that. Cling to him, lean on him, and he'll catch you. He will catch you. Finally, uh, Brueggemann says, uh, faith in God's promise is a possibility which the world sees as scandalous. The world will do what it can to eliminate the promise and crush the impossible possibility with ideologies of conformity, oppression, the good life, self-realization. And then here's this, this quote. The promise jeopardizes everything the world holds dear. For, but for all of that, Sarah and the community of Abraham have the last laugh. It is that laugh 
which is the ground for this ludicrous storytelling, which is both our deepest threat and our best hope. This promise is crazy. It, it, tells, it says crazy things about us and things we can't see when we look in the mirror and things we can't see when we look into the world. To hold on to it, it's just going to look foolish. It's scandalous, right? It's a stumbling block. But boy, it's our best hope. It's our best hope. It's going to ruin our lives. I loved Mike Iaconelli uh, was an old, old, old youth director guru for youth specialties. He had a big beard and stuff. And he often talked about how he was the pastor of the slowest growing church in America. He took it from 80 down to 30 or something. But uh, he, uh, he always would talk about how Jesus ruined his life. He was just on his way to success, and Jesus came in and said, nope, you're doing something different, and he wouldn't change it. Yeah, you know, he wouldn't change it to save his life. But uh, I want to pray, and then I'm gonna, uh, I got some uh, questions for you to discuss, to, to chew on this with one another. And so let's pray, and then I'll, I'll, I'll have you break into little groups here. Lord God, we give you thanks for this scandalous promise, for coming in and ruining our lives with your grace, Lord. You've interrupted our success agendas, our worldly agendas, and have claimed us for your own agenda, like you claimed Abraham. And so, Lord, um, renew once again in our hearts those promises that you've given us, promises of salvation. You've claimed us. You've forgiven us. You've made us your own. What does that mean for us? How do we boldly set out with our eyes on that promise? Lord, I pray that uh, through the course of this week, you would show us what that means for us. You would give us that faith of Abraham and of Sarah. And just like you did with them, you would restore us when we, when we wander off track, Lord. So bless us, bless our conversations, and uh, uh, we give you thanks for this beautiful day. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's what I want you to do. Um, you know, turn to, to some neighbors. And uh, first question, how have you experienced the barrenness of this sinful and broken world? We're going, this is a little deeper than ice cream, favorite ice cream. Uh, have you experienced a sense of God calling you in some way? Did you struggle with it? How did you respond? <laughs> We admire Abram for obeying God's call, but if an elderly person did that today, we would likely fear they were reckless. How do we discern whether a sense of call is genuine or misguided? How is faith in God's promise scandalous in the world's eyes? Do I have one more? No, that's it. So um, I'll give you two minutes to talk about all of those. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, You've got a good 20 minutes here. So uh, go ahead and... uh, Uh, Find some folks near you and and dive into those questions. Thank you for joining us today on the Mount Carmel podcast. We hope that you will join us again in the future as Dave Wand continues his teaching and we continue to publish other music, teaching, and preaching from Mount Carmel.